0: Hello and welcome to Cooking Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us just a little deeper behind the pages of the best of the food books. This week I'm with Orlando Murrin, former editor of BBC Good Food magazine, founder of Olive magazine, Waitrose columnist and president of the Guild of Food Writers to find out why two's company. One thing that I do
1: use quite a lot is a small tin of tomatoes, which is not very economical, but you don't have the half a tin of tomatoes rotting in the fridge. You know it grows a beard on top of it if you leave it there after a week and it's it's depressing
0: we began by going back in time to the renaissance in food culture in the late 1990s and specifically to 1997 when nigella hadn't even finished writing how to eat yet and when orlando was a contestant on a little sunday afternoon bbc2 show called the master show the the point of the show at
1: that time was it was created as a celebration of british home cooking a celebration of entertaining dinner parties, because that was the era of dinner parties. And it was all about the people, their personalities, and the joy that they had in cooking for other people and being creative with food. It was nothing to do with professionalism, the industry, no one expected you to go on and have a career. It was really kind of the world's most sublime dinner party. So that's why I entered. At the time, I was a magazine journalist. I was a chief sub-editor. So I was always on the word side um, of of magazines, and I'd worked in various women's magazines. So I was already kind of um, writing, but I never expected that MasterChef would in any way influence my career. Um, But it did.
0: And you influenced the food culture because when you just idly say that you were working for women's magazines, you were the editor of Woman and Home and you went on to be the editor of BBC Good Food magazine and Olive magazine. Now, they are some of the biggest and most influential ways of learning about food, not just how to cook food, but what food is in our culture. So you've you have been a trendsetter for a very long time, Orlando. Um, (laughs) Can you kind of take personal responsibility for specific trends? What did you champion as uh, editor on any of those? Well,
1: that's a lovely question, Ginny. I've never been asked it. And so I feel that I'm certainly writing my own obituary, which you don't <laughs> get to do, I don't think. Um, what I did was, so just to join up MasterChef with with Good Food, um, my journalistic career did reasonably well, nothing to do with MasterChef, but when BBC Good Food Editorship became vacant, I put myself forward and I said, look, you've got here someone who edits magazines who's also a kind of white-hot, keen food person, so you're not going to find anyone better than me. I was very arrogant i probably still am very arrogant um anyway i got that job and for a, a year or two i did actually founder i couldn't really work out what to do with the magazine which had been when it was launched an unthought of unheard of success because it was all over the television and it had massive promotion then over a few years it had dwindled into to occupy its more natural state in the magazine market We've thought about the magazine and, and what, what people are finding difficult about it. And we organised the magazine into slabs, actual slabs. So we had um, weekday food, make it tonight, 10 recipes that all took 15 minutes and five ingredients. Then we had the entertaining Then we had the in-season, these great blocks. So everyone knew exactly where they Mm. were. There was no doubt about it. And then I came up uh, with this slogan, BBC Goodtree, your friend in the kitchen. And what that did, that set the, the idea that we were with you there all the time, whatever you were making, we were making it with you. And of course, we had this amazing test kitchen operation, humming with people 24 hours a day. So everything was superbly tested. And I had the most amazing cookery staff who um, and food directors who were infinitely, they had more talent in their little finger than I do. And these people were making these recipes and the magazine started to do very well. And it was a bit like a, a ship going under sale everyone knew it was doing very well everyone in the company gathered around it so we all the best people came to work for the subscriptions person became the best subscriptions everyone won all the prizes everything suddenly happened and we had um, six glorious years in the end and every year every, after the first year, every year, every month's magazine did better than the month the previous year. So it was just entirely, everything grew.
0: Yeah, because of course, it was at a particular time, this is 1997 to 2004, that you were heading up BBC Good Food, And you founded Olive Magazine in 2004. This was, just to give it some context for people who might not kind of put all these things together, this is just when Nigella uh, was starting, 1998, Jamie Oliver, early 2000s. You know, we hadn't had those kind of programmes on television before. And I mean, I tell this story in my book, Taste of the TV Chef, Um, but it does tell that story. And, you know, you and I will remember what food was like uh, pre-1997. It was pretty dire. I mean, it was pretty good in little tiny bits of London town, uh, but across the country, it was pretty awful. Uh, and it was supermarkets that were driving that change, weren't they? That's why magazines like yours were picking that up and saying, prawns Jamie Oliver had, had got us all buying. You can buy beautiful wines now in Sainsbury's and Waitrose. So we were really interested, but we really needed to know how to do it. And that was your job, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Delia,
1: was- was there, Delia was the kind of foundation of the, of the nation's cookery skills. She'd been doing it for a very long time and carried on doing it during this period. And then while I was there, she came out with How to Cook. And that, if you like, paved the way for, for these exciting new talents. Like Jamie, we published Jamie's first recipe before he was ever on TV. Yeah. Um, and Nigella and Gary Rhodes had been doing mm. it. But Gary Rhodes was a bit of a showman, whereas this was this was real cooking in people's yes. homes. And it was enormously exciting. And of course, Gillie, we had the BBC Good Food Show in Birmingham. Exactly. I mean, I, I hold my head in my hands. That was the biggest ordeal I've ever had to go through in my life every year actually it was twice a year in the end I think it was three times a the year they just kept dropping more and more shows on top of us because yeah. it, so many thousands of people um, it was it was just so exciting with Gordon Ramsay all the ready steady cook people yeah. we were on the big stage the Good Food team was on the big stage demonstrating to 3,000 people
0: this was a real first let's not undersell this one Orlando nobody had done this before I mean now we've got food festivals all over the place but this was this was at the NEC in Birmingham and these were at St- stadiums, weren't they, where people would pay good money to come and see people cook. It never happened in Britain before. It was absolutely massive and
1: uh, quite frightening in a way, except that, you know, we just all, the whole team went up to Birmingham, stayed in a hotel and, and got, got on with it. I couldn't do it again now. I I'd go into meltdown, I think. <laughs> we were mobbed the way that um, the, the other chefs were mobbed. Uh, looking back, it's, life is much quieter now and much nicer, yeah. I'm afraid, Jilly. <laughs>
0: It's settled, isn't it? You know, there was such a huge kind of outpouring of interest and it was all based on aspiration, wasn't it? Everybody wanted to cook better than their friends and show off at those dinner parties Uh, that you talk about on MasterChef in 1992 became Come Dine With Me, didn't they? There
1: was a lot of cooking going on. I think nowadays there's a feeling that that a lot of people watch cookery on tv but don't actually cook it i i know for a fact how many people were cooking food at that time from the the sales of magazines that we made Um, and the reason that we launched olive incidentally was that um, there was a feeling that good food was was doing so well that 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 we should try and occupy the whole of the food market so we launched something Mm. very natty called easy cook which not everyone has heard of but it was a little magazine it was about I don't know, 32 or 64 pages. Uh, Initially, initially it was four times a year, but then it became monthly. And that was sent out to people who were not particularly experienced cooks and, and were not, going to buy expensive ingredients that's all simpler easy cook it's what it says so that was that end of the market and then we thought we needed to uh, occupy the aspirational end of the market as well and so that was what Olive was there for the reason that I left it's very unusual for an editor to leave a, a magazine when everything is going so well it was just that I felt that I was after that I was going to be starting repeating myself, and, and six, six years is my, my my maximum. And anyway, I went off because I wanted to do an exciting adventure in France.
0: Yes, and you that adventure in France really set you up for writing in a very different way. You 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 ran a gourmet hotel didn't you
1: yes yeah it was um it was absolutely fascinating um and my partner and I went into it from cold we didn't know anything about hotel keeping so uh, it was a that French dream lots of people were doing it there lots of British people were moving to France and we did it in spades and we rapidly renovated a lovely French property and it was a an amazing success from the um from the guests' point of view and commercially it was pretty good actually um, and we had, the whole season was, was a sellout. we had more people than we could really cope with um, and we survived, and I <laughs> use that word advisedly, for, for six years but it was actually very, very tough and I didn't know enough about it when I started and I wasn't a trained chef and to be honest, I turned into even more of a monster than I am <laughs> or have ever been since. And I think if I'd carried on like that, I would either have had a knife through my chest or I had to put one through someone else's. It was very, very tough and very destructive personally, I'll be honest with you.
0: Yes, I've heard many, many stories of how hard these things are, but character building. And uh, the thing about food is that it does offer you, if you are writing and you are creating uh, stories around food, it does it's a very transferable skill. And let's talk about your book, which is hopefully going to sell millions as well, Two's Company. (laughs) Now, first of all, the the, the premise is that most recipes are for more than two, but lots of people share a house with one other person. And rather than doing all the maths, you've done it for us. Yeah. But much more than that. I
1: feel very strongly about this, because there are Millions of people out there who do need recipes for two. And we are bored with halving recipes, forgetting we're halving them Halfway through, and then having to go back over the whole thing and try and make it good. We are bored with the half finished packets in the fridge of stuff because it doesn't use the whole packet. We are bored with the leftovers, frankly, of of making the thing for four because it can't be satisfactory reduced to and then having to eat it up every day. Leftovers are great, but every day to have to eat last <laughs> night's dinner, it's relentless. And you know, I haven't got a very big fridge, and it. it was always Full of all this stuff, and then you throw it out, and you feel terrible wasting the food. So you can tell that I really feel deeply that food writers are not serving the public realistically by always going for four, uh, four or six servings. And, Jilly, if you'll let me, I'll tell you why they're going for four and six servings. Because I've worked this out. First of all, for four or six serving with the large amounts, it's much easier for testing because. Things aren't so critical. It's not so accurate. You know, if you drop in another half teaspoonful of something into a a large thing, no one's really going to notice. It can completely ruin a small thing, a timing for a large thing. You get more latitude the larger the, the item is. And so you have to be very precise when you're testing recipes for two and you need to be more precise when you're cooking for two Mm. because of the smaller scale requires more accuracy more important than that there's a big impulse at the moment for food writers recipe writers in particular to to show their originality and inventiveness and expressiveness and I can understand this and as the years roll by more and more of the possible combinations involving um, chicken for instance have been used up so it's harder and harder to find something that is new and original. And one thing that tends to happen is that they pile in an extra ingredient. So it's not just chicken with grapes it's not just chicken saffron and grapes it becomes chicken saffron grapes and fennel or something else so they add in something and the recipe titles Mm. as you will have noticed are getting longer to reflect that there's more stuff going in now in order to get the more stuff in you're bulking up the recipe the whole time because you can't buy half a fennel you have to buy whole fennel so that's why the recipes get larger quantities because there's more stuff going in and this means that if you're cooking for two you end up with all these bits and pieces if you're going to get this, reflect the recipe title with the four different things in it. And I, I don't think there are any half packets. One thing that I do use quite a lot is a small tin of tomatoes, which isn't very economical, but you don't have the half a tin of yeah. tomatoes rotting in the fridge. You know it grows a beard on top of it if you leave it there after a week, and it's, it's depressing. So um, so there we are.
0: Well, it's fascinating. I'd never thought of that. You can tell the,
1: how deeply I feel that we're can... not really quite doing our job here.
0: Well, you've so done it for us. Thank you very much, Orlando. <laughs> Let's go through your four food moments. We're going to start off with mac and cheese souffle. Now, you did have an American childhood, didn't you? Your parents went to the um, to America after the war. And you talk about how your mother wrote home to her family about all the amazing ingredients and opportunities while rationing was still a uh, in the uk i actually think it's kind of interesting that the uk was has been so grumpy about food for a very long time whilst the americans embraced diversity and enjoyed themselves through food much much earlier than we did now you say this is a microcosm of the british american alliance can you tell me about that within the mac and cheese souffle recipe
1: (laughs) um it, it was very sad for my mother because um, she and my father went to the States just after the coronation, actually. And the, my mother got the big kind of cold shoulder from her mother. And they, there was this kind of rankling jealousy about it. And my mother was not boastful at all she was not an unpleasant boast woman she was generally thrilled to bits about all the lovely things that she was having and she thought that they would they would be pleased for her but they weren't pleased for her and there was always a kind of feeling oh you know it was all right for them and i'm afraid that i have detected that with <laughs> the american british relations generally i'm married to an american now and um i I'm aware. I'm tuned into it. The fact that you know, I, I think America's wonderful. I love its values. I love almost everything about it, and it baffles me that people can just be kind of automatically, you know, American, you know, bad taste or no idea that kind of thing. And it's so unfair in American cooking. Mac and cheese is a is a lovely dish. It sums up American home cooking in many ways. It's very simple, incredibly practical, easy, delicious, tasty, satisfying. So what I did with this recipe was, so that you don't end up with a, you know a great dish of it so you have to eat it for three weeks to come it's a it's a small quantity but super tasty and then just to put a spin on it i make it into a souffle which just by adding some whipped eggs and it's it's great fun it's not a great towering it's it's not kind of souffle that you would bring out like fanny crowd, and everyone would go ah, oh, it's just a a really nice um, exciting supper dish yeah
0: absolutely and you do say uh, in your little note to me please please can we talk about egg sizes which is something I feel very strongly about now obviously you need eggs for this one uh, yeah talk to me about eggs
1: um, about uh, three or four months ago, um, thanks to the Guild, I, I went to a talk about eggs from an egg producer. And she was a very intelligent woman called Jane Howarth from the British Hen Welfare Trust. And she said, you can help me, food writers, you can help me by doing one thing. And she explained to me that there is a problem, explained to us all that there's a problem with large eggs. Um, large eggs are um, uncomfortable for the hens to lay. Um, there's less economical for the farmer they're not actually as good as smaller eggs because they tend to be laid by the older hens and the the younger hens lay eggs with more yolk in them by proportion and a tighter firmer white so smaller or me- small or medium eggs are actually better mm-hmm. eggs and they're better for the hens as well mm. so her plea was can you perhaps ask people to consider buying mixed weight eggs mm. which you can now buy very easily and I'm very glad to see that in our supermarket the mixed weight eggs are gradually moving their way up from the bottom shelf towards the middle shelf and I would like them to be in the middle shelf because of course mixed weight eggs do contain mm. large eggs so if you've got to have a large egg for your breakfast for instance yeah, have that one. um then yeah, yeah. pick pick that one out and in most recipes it makes no difference at all whether you use a large or medium egg it's entirely fantastic to think that it's going to throw your recipe unless you're making something like a classic victoria sponge in which case you weigh the eggs anyway so weigh medium ones or small ones and and equal it with weight and flour well
0: top tip there orlando Uh, and, uh, you know, that goes with the other top tip that I've learned from you in your Waitrose column that you also put on the forum, which is you don't need to wait for your fan oven to reach the right temperature. You put the food in as soon as you turn on the oven. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? Saves a lot of energy.
1: You can do it with every oven, but you usually need to allow, you, you might need to allow a little extra time for the uh, for the other ovens to heat up. But why, why wouldn't you do that? And I'm afraid I do know why you wouldn't do it because, um, again, it's the poor old food Writers, they have to time everything absolutely accurately there might be a two minute variation in uh, even a fan oven one heating up against another one so they have their stopwatches going so for the purposes of clinical accuracy they want it to go into a certain time and out a certain time but that 's not how I don't run my life to clinical accuracy, do you? No, not I, in any I, way. I put it in and then <laughs> it, within it two or three minutes at the end of the time. It's usually, usually, usually done, isn't it? Yes,
0: absolutely. So you're
1: right. That's another of my, I seem to have many hobby do, horses, do, don't I? Do. I apologise, Jimmy No, 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 please.
0: We, we, we absolutely rely on you. We, we uh, You are our leader. Uh, your second food uh, moment is Czar in the Hole. Now, this is a riff on, on the good old Sunday roast. Tell us about this one. Well, it's a cross
1: between a, a, a Sunday roast um, toad in the hole and um, uh, beef stroganoff, uh, and it's just a, a really f- a fun thing to do. I got the I got the idea because. I'm not I don't actually like Toad in the Hole very much I always find the sausages rather unsatisfactory in in the Hole but I like the idea of it and I love making Yorkshire puddings and it's I have Yorkshire puddings with roast chicken do you yes
0: of course we do yes <laughs> who doesn't
1: <laughs> and, and I, I found I found an amazing i worked on the um on the Yorkshire pudding recipe so in fact I think I, I said to you that this book is worth buying just for the Yorkshire pudding recipe which I have scaled down to two but you can equally scale it up again if you want to take the recipes in reverse and scale them up by all means do so and um, this Yorkshire pudding recipe has, it was developed from it started off with Fel- felicity cloak who writes for mm-hmm. the guardian who's a uh, guild, the guild Thunder, vice yeah. president and then the serious eats website in america got hold of it and they're really really techie and they went crazy with it they, they're called popovers in yes. america um Yorkshire puddings and they Super developed it a little bit more and finessed this and that, and then I took it back and reduced it down to two. So, you've got I just tell you, you've got the best Yorkshire pudding. Into that, I put a really straightforward, simple um, beef stroganoff, and um, it very delicious, it is too. So, it's got a little kind of case of Yorkshire pudding and this creamy strong enough which you. It's quite thrifty, that, because one rump steak serves two. I like a one steak serves two dish, don't I you? I do
0: very much indeed, and it looks so pretty as well. Your food moment number three is sea bass fingers with tartar deluxe. Well, I think
1: we all love fish fingers, and um, one thing I found doing the book was that there are some cooking techniques which are very, very delicious, but are a right royal pain in the neck when you're doing them for a family or or six people and egg and bread crumbing is a pain it's fiddly sticky you get it all over your hands don't you you end up you might as well deep fry your fingers actually by the time you've done the egg and bread crumbing because they're so covered with the stuff so for years I avoided it and I, I flatly I refused to do it in the restaurant because it was just it was awful you've got the you've got this kind of production line you've got the flour your egg your bread crumbs and then you've got to find somewhere to put the stuff that's been egged and bread crumbed until you fry it Um, So, you've got the whole kitchen is devoted to this kind of ghastly, sticky procedure, which all has to be washed up and cleared up afterwards. If you're doing it for two, it's just, da, 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 three little bowls and a plate, and it goes really fast so i've taken to egg egg and bread crumbing lots of things because it's such a delicious thing and i don't deep fry i just fry it because you don't need to deep fry for the for the small quantities and it's the tastiest thing so this is just the most delicious um fish fingers that you'll you'll ever have in your life it's um and i mean i buy i'm not very uh, trained with the old knives i don't do filleting and things but i can get the skin off a piece of fish by sliding the knife under and for two people again it isn't hair raising and and the other lovely thing about cooking for two is that you haven't got people queuing up wondering you know when is dinner going to be ready and you haven't got guests sipping their sherry in an anxious way what wondering what the screaming is coming (laughs) from the kitchen it is ready when it is ready every i say everyone to your partner or whatever you're cooking for it will be ready at some point just trust me it will come out and i have an hour window for when dinner will be ready and it, that's why i enjoy cooking because it's the opposite of having guests all champing and and hoping and waiting so i love
0: you. the way that you've turned waste into friends actually get rid of them as well you don't need them either <laughs> um, your fourth food moment uh, chicken with 20 cloves of garlic and crackling why is this one
1: well the i think the classic french dish is chicken with 40 cloves of garlic and um i which is one of those long slow dishes that you do for ages and ages and all the flavors merge and melt and i did find when i was testing the recipe because because i want i wanted to adapt for to all the things that i wanted to eat and it was frustrating that I couldn't have this noble French dish because you know, if you if you do two little chicken breasts with 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 the garlic, it all kinda of disappears. So it's just an example of, of how I've reconstructed a dish. So I take the chicken, I slice it and I fry it, and I cook the garlic separately and leave in the oven for ages and ages so that becomes soft and melting. And then I combine them. And so I've got the best of both worlds. I and I haven't got the um I haven't got the any problems that come from long slow cooking which is often quite difficult for two because it tends to dry up yeah so you know you the, the the liquid problem is 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 the main problem when you're cooking for two because you either need to add in more liquid or it disappears or you know it doesn't come out the same consistency if you just halve everything.
0: Yes, and you say that the crackling uh, was inspired by another guild member, Rosie Burkett.:
1: Yes Rosie, Rosie and I have done a uh, lovely podcast with Tom Kerridge, yes. and she's incredibly inventive. Um, I really do admire cookery writers who just kind of um, think they want, dream of doing something and then work out how to do it. I'm more a kind of, oh, I've made that. I'm now going to make it for two. Whereas Rosie at some point thought I'm going to make chicken crackling and worked out how to do it. And what you do is you get the skin of the chicken, which otherwise would be thrown away. It's incredibly delicious. You just flatten it out as best you can it's right it's not enormous it's just a little bit of skin like um about you know in centimeters i suppose 10 by three or four centimeters you flatten it out as best you can on a piece of baking paper and then you put salt and pepper on it and then you fold the baking paper over it and then you put it in on top to weight it down and then you roast it and it turns into really exactly like the best most brittle um pork crackling Mm. only thinner and tastier Mm. and it's it's no effort Mm. it uses a bit of um, baking paper and I was troubled as I was writing the book about the use of foil and baking paper and cling film which make they make cooking easier and cleaner to clear up after but they're using stuff that you don't have to so I'm trying like everyone I think to you see if I can do without them and yet not have the wretched crackling stick to the tin yeah. in which case you're wasting the crackling as well as everything else aren't you and have to throw the tin away as well which is hardly very good for the for the environment because it's a it's wrecked yeah. so you know we have to kind of try and work at these things to, to save, um, t- to be economical, I think, in every way.
0: We do. Going back now, just to finish off, uh, to your role at any one of those editorships, say BBC Good Food, take yourself back to 2003, 2004, and compare these amazing recipes with what you were doing then. You are offering us so many tips. It feels to me that you're talking to a very different kind of cook. You're talking to somebody who has really experienced a lot more food diversity, who's much more uh, adventurous, probably, in the kitchen than perhaps somebody was way back then. But you're talking to more people. There are, regardless of what we said before about, you know, not many people cooking what they see on television. There are so many more people interested in food. Do you feel that you're speaking to a more adventurous and a, a more populous a Gen- generation of cooks. Unquestionably, and
1: it, it, thank you, supermarkets. I know that everyone has a has a go at the supermarkets the whole time and they have to be kept in line shall we say but the stuff that has rolled in and become made available and of course the the speciality shops are wonderful as well uh, but they benefit from uh, from it from the, the whole movement to try new things and there is this quest to try new things the whole time. I'm I 'm slightly torn about the just trying new things for their own sake, but I think we all love it it's It's adventure it's exciting um, you know all over the world they 've been making these wonderful uh, ingredients. I encountered someone recently they they wrote to me because of my weight choice column and saying oh um I, I'd make a rule of not trying a recipe if it contains an ingredient that I can't pronounce. And I thought, oh, that's funny, I thought initially. What well, that's a clever idea. And then I thought think actually, darling, you're missing out a bit because, um, you know, there's a whole world of stuff out there. Um, It's a little bit difficult when you're cooking for two because you can't just go on buying a pot of something and then use a teaspoonful of it because, as I discovered, you rapidly end up with a cupboard full of stuff that you need to find a home for. So you have to be a bit careful about it. You can't just buy new stuff the whole time because... there's just no room for it or or it just goes out the other side because it goes out of date the other side but i think cooking is all about new ingredients and and when i a a visit to a supermarket now would be unrecognizable compared with 20 years ago they had a little a little thing it seems to me special selection they had. I remember it. it was like a cupboard in it. It was thrilling things, wonderful, inventive things. but now, of course, the whole thing is special selection virtually there are aisles of. exciting things. Gosh, it's so exciting, our diet now. We're so lucky, in Britain particularly.
0: Well, yes, but then, of course, we do have to change the whole thing. As Henry Dimbleby says, we have to change the food culture now, so that that is more inclusive and more climate-friendly. So, as we look forward, in 10 years' time... What will the Guild be talking about? What will you be writing about in your Waitrose column? And what will your next books be uh, if the supermarkets were to lead that change? Well, I do
1: think that uh, waste is a, is a real issue. So I think we're going to have to see, whether likes it or not, more items for one or two. I think the packaging of of items is going to have to come down in scale or or no packaging at all i mean vegetables i know everyone goes groans about packaged vegetables and yet people buy them but that's a real pain in the neck if you're cooking for a house household for two because you don't want the the, the, the packet you need half the packet so I, markets are much better because you can get what you need so the supermarkets are going to have to reflect that and we're going to be using much less um of usable things like paper and soap and all the and and foil and cling film um i think it'll be a more economical outlook trying not to waste and trying to focus on that meal
0: Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jsmith.com And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news, including the supper clubs. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when we're zooming off to California to meet the James Beard Award nominee, Nick Sharma, and get scientific about the flavour equation.